on. I'm on WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Emily Hung, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear how college groups are getting young people voting. Absentee ballots are something that require a lot more education and a lot more knowledge than just getting registered to vote. We hear how Ithaca's COVID college response compares to another part of the country. I actually haven't left campus much. I think I've gone uh, to town one or two times. We look back on the local history of the women's suffrage movement. And so they had a lot of interesting things going on. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. Ithaca College has announced it will eliminate 130 faculty jobs at the college. This comes in response to a $30 million cut in the school's budget. This budget cut is traced back to a sharp drop in enrollment rates for the 2020-2021 school year, with many students choosing to defer their enrollment or take leaves of absence. The school has already faced a steady decline in enrollment over the previous years. Skylar Hospital is currently suspending outside visitation after Seneca View Nursing Facility had two residents test positive for COVID-19. Both residents have been isolated and one employee will be completing a self-quarantine to protect the other residents. Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick has announced that he will enter a precautionary quarantine. Mayor Myrick attended a press conference in Syracuse this past Wednesday along with other regional mayors including Binghamton Mayor Rich David. David later tested positive for COVID-19. Mayor Myrick stated that he is currently experiencing no symptoms. On October 7th, the Common Council voted to remove the White Settlers Monument located in DeWitt Park. Numerous people have gone on record since the vote, such as Alderperson Cynthia Brock and Alderperson George McGonagall, discussing the importance of removing the White Settlers structure as it erases the indigenous history of Ithaca. The discussion would be permanently on record, though no information of how or when the monument will be removed has been released at this time. The Ithaca City School District has released the results of COVID-19 tests taken by over 600 students and 35 adults. All students tested negative, as did all adults but one. Superintendent Louvel Brown called the results terrific news. The one adult who tested positive was a teacher at South Hill Elementary. Though the teacher was on site prior to the test results, they did not come into contact with students. The Tompkins County Recycling and Materials Management Office will be closed this Monday because of Indigenous Peoples Day, but the Recycling and Solid Waste Center will be open from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. and recycling pickups will follow their regular schedule. For George Christopher, I'm Chess Cabrera, WICB News. With Election Day now less than a month away, student groups in the Ithaca area are pushing for young people, a group that historically has low voter turnout, to the polls by mail or in person. Correspondents Agnes Scotty and Jess Moskowitz report on how activists are getting students voting. October has certainly arrived in Ithaca. The leaves are changing, sweaters are making their annual comeback, 
and more and more carved pumpkins have been appearing on doorsteps. Yet, with just one month until the 2020 election on November 3rd, two student organizations in Ithaca are focused on far more than just spooky season. I'm Jess Moskowitz. And I'm Agnes Scotty. This week, we caught up with Cornell Votes and IC Votes as they work to get college students and young people motivated to vote this November. We asked them how they stay motivated despite the changes 2020 has provided and why they feel it is so important that college students use their right to vote. We are hopeful that students are actually going to go out and vote and that they're um, motivated to vote because they've seen so much, especially with like the election atmosphere and like... uh, That's Kamala Raga, the communications director of Cornell Votes. She says that current issues such as the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Trump administration's recently redacted decision to not allow international students to study at online universities has motivated some students to use their right to vote more than they ever would in other election years. Raga says her organization is focused on registering as many people to vote across the Cornell campus as possible. Yet, because of COVID-19, Raga also says she has been focused on absentee voting, something that can have different rules and regulations in every state and is more important than ever to have information about in the 2020 election year. Registering to vote and then voting are two separate things. And um, right now we're working with um, our bus system, TCAT, to see what we can do to provide um, more transportation to polling centers. And we're also increasing our voter education. So if, um, especially like absentee ballots, if we want students like request their absentee ballots, we wanna make sure they're doing it now, especially because of delays in mail and stuff like that. That's a big thing, that's a big issue we're going on right now. In terms of like absentee, um, that's something that we've been looking into for a while. And I do feel like like absentee ballots are something that require a lot more education and a lot more knowledge than just getting registered to vote. And so we're working on, um, especially in terms of communication, we're working on like um, voter education um, platforms and looking to see how we can best help our students. And um, yeah, in terms of communication, they've been running workshops. We're doing absentee ballot workshops now um, for all of our coalition members. And coalition is building that coalition of um, all these members that want to get registered to vote and get their absentee ballots or vote in person. Despite the global pandemic, Cornell University has had a successful beginning to their fall semester by keeping their positive case numbers low with consistent testing and regulations put in place by the campus. Yet Raga says despite the pandemic, Cornell Votes has reached nearly 6,000 students as a part of their voting coalition through student organizations and by providing easy and safe resources for students who want to participate in this year's election. Raga says that Cornell Votes is working to encourage everyone to vote, no matter their level of interest in politics, by saying that every voice counts and no voice should go unheard. A lot of the issues that we have right now is because um, people aren't going out and voting and then they're dissatisfied with democracy and they're dissatisfied with what's going on. And we have that ability to change what's going on. We just have to go out and vote. And I think, um, yes, there are so many issues. Yes, there's so many other things that we could be doing. But right now, I think the priority should be going and voting. And then we can look at reforms. Over on South Hill, Ithaca College's new initiative, IC Votes, has made strides in the year it has been in place. Despite Ithaca College making the decision to go completely remote this fall, key members of the initiative, Michael Devaney and Lucy Calderon, say that IC Votes has changed, but their motivation to get IC students to vote has not. Through IC Votes, we believe that no matter who you are and where you come from and what you believe, It is your right and your civic duty to make your voice heard in elections because 
how you choose to use your voice in elections influences the future. With Ithaca College going remote, I see votes as strategy has changed, turning to social media to get Ithaca College students the resources they need for election day. So uh, our strategy is to be uh, um, really active on social media and uh, utilizing like um, our, our resources with like the Ithaca email because um, we all we all know we can't necessarily reach out on campus like in the past putting up posters. Cauldron says that their social media strategy has been effective not only because there are IC students in nearly every state around the country, but because they have been able to help students find a way to vote that is most convenient and comfortable for them. Voting has never been more accessible around the country before until now because of COVID-19. Everyone in most states um, have altered their voting laws where anyone can request an absentee ballot and anyone is eligible. So at this point, it's kind of like there is no excuse for anyone not to vote. It's not that you don't have time. You can make voting fit your own circumstances from the comfort of your home by voting via absentee ballot. And through IC Votes, we're trying to do this, like Michael said, through social media. But through social media, we're just making sure that we're getting out voter education information and that everyone has the info that they need to register to vote, get their absentee ballots and to vote in general. And then also, it is so easy because everything virtual to be very disengaged right now and to feel discouraged about everything going on. So as I see votes, we're not just giving people the resources to vote, but also getting them feeling empowered to vote. Similar to Cornell votes, Devaney says that regardless of where Ithaca College students are in the country physically, IC Votes' main goal is to get as many current Ithaca College students voting as possible, and to make sure that they are involved in every election taking place this November, not just the presidential one. We're really aiming to get our uh, voter turnout on campus high, no matter where, where uh, you know, Ithaca College students are from, no matter if they're from uh, local, well, around the Ithaca area or from other states like Pennsylvania or California, Michigan. So it really um, lets the uh, students know um, to delve deeper into their local elections, like their, their congressional races and senatorial races, to learn more about what's actually going on behind the scenes on a day-to-day -day basis with like bills passed on the floor, who votes on what. Uh, and we're really uh, aiming to, uh, I guess, encourage them to... I guess, do more research, you could say. It's clear that both Cornell Votes and IC Votes share the same dream, proving to their fellow students that no matter how old you are, your voice matters and deserves to be heard, especially in an election year. When you vote for politicians, you're also voting for policy and the lives of everyone in the United States, because that policy will affect them in their everyday lives. So I not only think that voting is a privilege, but also it's a right, it's a responsibility, and something that is necessary because it'll determine the future of the United States and our everyday lives. The last day to request an absentee ballot is October 27th in New York State. Early voting in New York begins on October 24th and ends on November 1st. If you're able to vote, please make sure you're registered and that you show up. For all information regarding registration, absentee, and mail-in ballots, please visit vote.org or votesaveamerica.com today.
You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Emily Hung. Due to the pandemic, many of our reporters are writing, recording, and producing the pieces you hear from WICB remotely. Correspondent Vadon Akari was in Florida for a period of time, covering what he saw and comparing their response in schools to Ithaca's COVID response. Welcome to part two of Florida versus Ithaca, where I compare the pandemic response in Ithaca and Florida. You can find part one on WICB.org, where I discuss the pandemic at Orlando's Walmart, the University of Central Florida, Universal Studios, and the city of Ithaca. For part two, I want to compare the pandemic response at Ithaca College, Orlando, and at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. To hear directly about the experience here for Ithaca College students, I spoke to exploratory major and freshman Jay Barrett. My professors have been very accommodating. I think the majority of them understand that uh, Zoom and online classes are a lot sometimes. I think one of my teachers even has an option where if you can't Zoom one day, you're just tired of it, you can just do an alternate uh, asynchronous assignment. Do you think Ithaca did the right thing by going fully remote for fall 2020? I think in retrospect, it's very easy for us to say, oh, all the other colleges are doing fine. Why did we ever go remote? But I think at the time, seeing that Cornell wasn't, was beginning to stray away and from cooperating from us. And um, based on the plan I know they have right now, I'm not sure how they would do it with everyone on campus no, with our current protocols in place. And how would you rate IC's handling of this COVID-19 pandemic as of fall 2020? Uh, obviously, they can't stop kids partying. Um, they, the best they can do is try to help after the fact. But as far as normal protocols for like the dining hall or like our restrooms or residence halls, I feel like they're doing the best they can. And so could you just describe the typical routine for yourself at IC and how often do you leave East Tower or even campus? I actually haven't left campus much. I think I've gone um, to town one or two times. The Cornell kids are really in town. So every time I pass their houses, they're always like outside and hanging out. And so how many people would you say are living in East Tower by estimate? And how many people have you run into on IC's campus? Based on sort of the group emails, I think there's 25 of us. As far as running to people on campus, I think most times I go out on campus, I don't see anybody. I might see some locals walking the campus or like skateboarding. Um, I only see maybe one or two students a day. What would you say has been the hardest part about the fall 2020 semester? Trying to get out almost, not in the sense of partying, or so, but it's the idea of since everything is online, I don't have much reason to go leave my room and go somewhere else. And sort of the lack with that lack of like walking maybe to classes or walking to the library. Um, it sort of made me feel a little cooped up. Is there anything you think that IC could be doing better in terms of how it's been handling the COVID-19 pandemic? I know they don't know anything right now, but even telling us straight, they just don't know. Because I think the talking to other freshmen, the largest frustration they have is we get told a plan now, but they're not sure if they can trust that plan anymore. I asked Jay for any advice he has for college freshmen. I think it is really important, even though we're not on campus, to get connected with kids on campus. Um, I think the um, Ithaca organized events are a great help. Um, we also have a huge freshman discord for all the freshmen at IC. Um, it's been great getting to know people on there. Even though everything, 
is hard right now. Uh, I think we're all doing our best to be together as much as we can. Having lived in Orlando myself throughout the pandemic, I knew it was a different experience from that of upstate New York. A few weeks ago, my parents had to fly to India to attend my grandmother's funeral. My parents wanted to get tested for COVID-19 before their flight the following morning. They wanted to be safe and were under the impression that international flights required testing beforehand. They would have known otherwise if such information was easy to find. None of Florida's websites offered any helpful links for COVID-19 testing. Even if they did, it couldn't be found easily. My parents and I rushed to CVS, to Walgreens, and to a local clinic. These areas promised test results within the same day. However, huge lines and mountains of paperwork to fill out at the spot made it a hassle. It took us three hours to find a testing facility inside a drive through parking garage that guaranteed results within the same day and only asked a few questions worth of paperwork, but we had to drive 30 minutes to get there. Now, my expectation was that at a test center where there's obviously a much higher concentration of COVID-19, there would be more PPE. The volunteers wore masks as expected, but almost none wore gowns and gloves. A stark difference from the testing precautions seen in the North. As a reminder, this facility said we'd get our results by the end of the day. You want to know how long it actually took? Four days. One day afterwards, they called me again to mention that I tested negative for COVID-19. This might be an isolated case, but it gave the impression that the testing facility was inefficient, both at sharing results and tracking those who already got those results. All in all, if I had known that COVID-19 testing was not required for international travel, we wouldn't have undergone this frustration, confusion, and potential exposure to COVID-19 at a testing facility. For our final category, here's my interview with sophomore Dasha Chirapko and senior Christina Rodriguez. Both are students at FSU in Tallahassee, Florida. You know, getting to know and understanding the material from class is really just harder online for me. It just kind of disconnects you from like you really being a student and like taking classes. And I don't really get to see my friends and I don't get to join in on activities from different organizations at Florida State. I ask if their professors were accommodating like Jay's professors at Ithaca College. So if you have a test, but then, you know, you're also dealing with somebody in your family who's dealing with uh, the virus, then, you know, professors will, you know, try to work with you. Yeah, and I feel like all my professors have been very accommodating too. None of them are very, very strict or have high expectations because of how unreasonable of a time it is. But I do have one professor who I feel is a little bit too accommodating. It's not even a Zoom class. He literally just records the lectures and you listen to them. And he's had a couple of assignments and people have complained about not being able to do them on time. So he kept pushing them off and pushing them off and pushing them off because of that. It's really easy to push his class to the side and ignore it until all of a sudden we have a midterm and you realize that you haven't done any of the work. They mentioned that similar to IC, FSU has reduced the number of dorm residents and that many students who live off campus were unable to get out of their apartment lease. Ithaca has a similar dilemma as told by many in my friend group. Some live in Ithaca because they couldn't get out of their lease, had already paid their lease, 
or still wanting to live in Ithaca during the pandemic. FSU has a similar and possibly worse problem than Cornell University when it comes to student effort in reducing the spread of COVID-19. People in Tallahassee are very inconsiderate and don't really care about what's going on. Um, so I heard this from one of my friends that told me that um, 32304, which is a zip code in Tallahassee, is one of the poorest zip codes and areas in Florida. So that means that most, most low-income people live there and, you know, what, if they get the virus, would be affected the most because they don't have the resources. In a way, you know, FSU students are being disrespectful by not following the guidelines and throwing parties and going to clubs. You know, yesterday, a club... Uh, in Tallahassee that's called recess opened and then somebody took a picture of the line and it took up the whole parking you know almost the whole parking garage it was crazy the amount of people that you know just don't really care about this while New York governor Andrew Cuomo has imposed strict limits on the reopening of businesses Florida governor Ron DeSantis has lifted all capacity limits to be blunt, it's ridiculous. Like, if you saw the debate last night, Trump, what he said is that people, they wear their masks, they keep their distance, they know what to do, and he puts all this faith in people. And I'm assuming that that's what our governor is doing, too. He's thinking that, oh, it's okay if we go back to normal because people will be looking out after themselves. But that's really not the case. I think that it's a really dumb idea because people are going to get really, really, really sick. Yes, the business will be affected, but I feel like the safety of others is way more important, you know? And you can still, you know, keep a restaurant up, you know, open, just wear a mask and social distance. So you still have customers and you're being safe. If they adapt to our times and use technology, like do focus a little bit more on takeout um, restaurant wise, or maybe set up a website and have people be able to purchase certain merchandise online. I feel like at the end of the day, they will be okay. Maybe they'll struggle a little bit, but they'll be able to survive. This semester, FSU, first of all, I feel like it shouldn't really be open. There's like 50,000 students in our school. And the fact that, you know, the president sends an email to students saying, oh, you know, you guys have been partying. It's like, what do you expect? It's FSU. Like FSU is one of the biggest party schools in, you know, the nation. Of course, they're going to be partying. That's not a surprise. Everybody knew that. How are you going to catch every single person who doesn't wear a mask? That's another thing. But for the most part, when I've been on campus, it's been mostly a ghost town. There hasn't been that many people wandering around. I asked them to compare Florida's response to Ithaca's and for any words of advice to fellow listeners. A lot of Cornell students are partying. That sounds very, very familiar to me. I think that the situation in New York is not so different from the situation in Florida, except for the fact that we have a governor that's just letting people walk around without wearing masks. The only thing I do know that is kind of similar with Florida is that it got really bad, but then like cases started slowing down, but you guys still get cases every day, but not as bad as uh, before, which is the same in Florida. Please like remind yourself to take care of yourself and, you know, check in on others and, you know, your family because they could be going through hard stuff too, you know, whether that's financial stuff or if it has to do with COVID. Treat people kindly. You don't know what they're going through. If you can be gentle with someone, then be gentle with them and with yourself, too. For WICB News, I'm Vedanta Kari.
more election reporting is on the way. Stay tuned here and on WICB.org for more. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Emily Hung. It's been 100 years since the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution, guaranteeing women the right to vote throughout the country. Despite it being such a national achievement, activists in the local region made big strides toward bringing it to New York. WICB News Production Director Himadri Seth spoke to those covering it to explore the movement and its local history. You can't be cynical about it. You can't say my vote doesn't matter. It matters. And it's, you know, I think that that's, that's one of our, one of the lessons that we found is that this was a very, this was a long struggle and it was not a given. I mean, it was not even, even as late as, as 1920, it was not a given. I mean, this, this really took a very long time and none of the early leaders actually lived to see it. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Feels kind of excruciatingly obvious, doesn't it? Yet somehow, whole lives went by in attempts to get these 38 words in the Constitution simply to allow more or less half of the population of all humans in the country to have a say in the choice of their leaders. A fair amount is known about the national movement. The movement for women's suffrage had started to take foot in the decades before the Civil War. This was followed by a long history of advocacy, a gradual strengthening of women's footing in social and political issues through their participation in movements like the temperance leagues, anti-slavery organizations, and even their later role in the First World War all of which, alongside many, many movements spanning from the grassroots to the national level, also framed within a broader international context, led to women initially winning the right to vote in certain states, and then finally the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified on the 18th of August 1920, roughly a hundred years before now. Powerful radical figures like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton founders of the National Women's Suffrage Association in New York ensured that the state got its fair share of recognition within the national movement. New York was one of the earlier states to give women the right to vote, granting that right in 1917. It was home to the landmark Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention in the United States, held from 19th to 20th July 1848, in which a staggering at least for the time, 300 locals showed up. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably already jumping up like, yeah, that place is like less than an hour away from Tompkins County. We made big history, how fun. But I'll also implore you to think about how in the 1840s, when buggies and horses were all the rage, Seneca Falls was actually not that close by. Something lesser known about that convention is that it unanimously passed all of the 11 resolutions discussed except for the ninth one, which demanded women's suffrage and barely scraped by. So while it was undeniably a pretty neat convention that laid a lot of groundwork for the future of women's rights, it isn't an all-encompassing representation of the women's suffrage movement in upstate New York. Our local history is not confined to our knowledge of what was happening at large in the state. And it is just as important to remember the many, some of them forgotten, 
faces of the fight for women's suffrage in the places that sometimes missed the big papers. 2017, of course, was the 100th anniversary of the New York State Suffrage Amendment. And so I was asked to do a small exhibit in the library, and Carol and I were asked to give a talk about it. And so we did that in November to commemorate the, uh, the passage of the New York State Amendment. And doing some of the research for that talk, we, we thought, this is a bigger story than we can do in a 30-minute talk, obviously, in an hour talk, even in a minute. We should really, we should really write a book. That was Elaine D. Engst, retired Cornell University archivist who co-authored Achieving Beulah Land, The Long Struggle for Suffrage in Tompkins County with Carol Carmen, Tompkins County historian. The book came out in 2018 and covers various accounts, written and photographic, of the local movement for women's suffrage. Writing this particular book was important to Elaine, and she explains why. There are a lot of books about women's suffrage. I mean, there are tons of books and they all do different perspectives, but most of them are at least on the state level, if not the national level. So they're really books that take the big picture, that look at the big picture. And we wanted to see the microcosm. What was happening in this small, initially rural community in upstate New York? I mean, and Ithaca's it's an interesting place and it's again it was small it was rural it was kind of sleepy <laughs> frankly at, at, at this point and how could we see that in the context of what was going on elsewhere but how did it play out here and then you have this major change you have a new university and a really radical educational experiment coming into this small place and so you had a lot of interesting things going on. The weird thing about writing this book was also that for the first time, Elaine faced the problem of not having enough sources to get information from, instead of the usual panic of there being too much information to capture. Even in the sources she did find, there were certain peculiarities. There are a couple of people that we never found pictures. And they weren't, just, they weren't obscure people. So again, is this, what did this tell us? The absence of something, what does it tell you? Did they not want their pictures taken? Was it simply that there are pictures, but they weren't, nobody kept them? I mean, that they were, they were family pictures, but those family albums somehow disappeared. Um, why? So again, this was a question we couldn't answer. I found it hard to believe that all of these women were somehow just camera shy. Elaine says that some of it is to be blamed on the fact that many of the organizations involved were student groups, and apparently student groups in general are just not all that great at keeping records. Who would have thought? But there is yet more commentary to be found in the sources that are present or even absent. Interesting, the thing that we found no documentation on locally was the anti-suffrage movement. And this is something, of course, you have to remember is not everybody supported this. A whole lot of people didn't, including a lot of women. <laughs> and we, can, we, know, we know that there was anti-suffrage activity in town because you can read about it, but we have no names, zero, and we have no groups. So does that mean they weren't there? <laughs> 
absence is not proof of anything. <laughs> but but it's interesting that they're not. The, the other thing that we, we notice is that there is a certain class element to the suffrage movement locally, where the kind of uh, the elite, the, the, as you call them, the great white families, are not really the ones involved. That you have, what you have is people who've come to Ithaca, who are sort of new to the community. You have people who are associated with the university. You have people who are uh, who've come from progressive families elsewhere and are bringing that to to the, the local scene. So you you actually have a sort of a different group of people and not the people who are going to be the ones who have the huge family collections. But those aren't the people who are who are getting excited. And again. It's not that those that those women are involved in lots of, you know, philanthropic charitable activities and they don't seem to be specifically opposed to suffrage that we can tell, but they're certainly not active. And so that's interesting. So then who were some of the people who were involved in this movement? What were their names? What did they do in their daily lives? While unfortunately we don't have records for everyone, Karen Pastorello, co-author with Susan Goodyear of the book Women Will Vote, Winning Suffrage in New York State, which came out in 2017, has some of the names. Some of them, like Helen Booster Owens, uh, was a math professor, so some taught. Um, one woman who was early active in the movement was a woman named Louisa Lord Riley, and her son was actually an engineering student at Cornell, and she had started a suffrage club in Orange, New Jersey, and moved to Ithaca, with her husband so that they could maintain a household for her son to stay in while he went to Cornell. This is in the 1890s, of course, so uh, that was a very common practice then. But in general, um, Ithaca Forms uh, was called a political study club, which is an off-branch off of uh, an existing women's club in Ithaca. And the Women's Political Study Club had a visit from both Susan B. Anthony and a woman named Harriet May Mills to help them as they were starting to get organized. And that political study club eventually becomes the political equality club in Ithaca. And then they expand the reach into Tompkins County. And all those local and even more regional organizations are organized under uh, the National American Woman Suffrage Association and the New York State Women's Suffrage Association. So it's a, it's a grassroots network that kind of builds up and out from there. Going from the idea of grassroots participation, a striking thing is that, according to Elaine, there's actually no evidence of any knowledge of the Seneca Falls Convention within the Ithaca community at the time. Instead, there was a different date that actually had a lot more meaning for the people of and around Tompkins County. I think the the big date is, of course, 1894. 1894, there's a state constitutional convention, and New York State was supposed to have those about every 20 years, I think. Um, and so this was an opportunity for the state suffrage leaders to mount a petition drive, that they were going to petition the constitutional convention to remove the word male from the New York State Constitution. So that's... And they really, they actually got 600,000 signatures on their petition. So this was a very, this was a statewide initiative, very big deal, uh, done on a county basis. Uh, the local one, I think there were 3,000 signatures in Ithaca. 
um, or in Tompkins County, actually. But the petitions were submitted to the Constitutional Convention and they voted it down. And essentially, the powers that be were not interested and controlled the convention. So then what happens locally is that the New York State Women's Suffrage Association holds its annual meeting in Ithaca in November of 1894. And that's, uh, that's a big deal for Ithaca because mostly they would hold it in big cities, in Rochester and Syracuse and you know, New York. So, so to hold it in, in Ithaca was a big impetus for local people to get involved. And there wasn't a formal organization. There was a kind of an informal organization to do the petition drive. And interestingly, what they, one of the petition, the woman who was kind of in charge of the petition drive said they would have gotten more signatures, but they were doing this in February and the roads were bad. And can you imagine in 1894 going around these local roads? I mean, they didn't have cars. <laughs> they, they were doing this with, with horses and, and buggies and, and it must have been horrible. Believe it or not, the horses and buggies were actually a much bigger complication than we may realize today. In fact, it was one of the big problems the movement was facing, other than, of course, you know, most men at the time and their desperate need for washing machines and babysitters instead of wives. So just reaching out and connecting, you know, if you think of the modes of communication in the late 18th, early 19th century, um, it's amazing to me that these women, even the more well-known leaders like Stanton and Anthony, were able to travel as much as they did. And of course, um, some of that is because the train networks and railways and um, subways were a little bit better in some places than even they are now. Um, so overcoming those kind of logistical challenges of travel, also reaching out to the more rural uh, remote families, you know, the women and the men, um, and really traveling in a house-to-house -house way and, and connecting with people that lived in very isolated places was an initial challenge. Arguments against women's suffrage and just a general lack of understanding of it, things that are hard to even imagine now, were the other big problems. Well, at first, people did not realize what even the term suffrage meant. And in simple terms, it means the right to vote. Um, they heard the word, and that, to some of them, of course, is off-putting. So just educating the public and overcoming um, some of the um, lack of knowledge about what suffrage was and what it would really mean. And as, as you mentioned, uh, the anti-suffragists had a lot of arguments against suffrage. Um, one of the big ones is women would become less feminine. Um, they would probably neglect their household responsibilities. Um, those were, as I said, the more common arguments. We also heard kind of the extremes where women who became suffragists were um, apt to bear defective children. Um, so the arguments kind of uh, ran the range. We cannot talk about this without addressing the additional challenge of racism. It took women from certain communities, especially women of African-American descent, astoundingly longer to achieve the same goal of the seemingly simple idea of being able to choose their leaders. Uh, something else that I think is actually bigger and maybe more um, poignant is the issue of racism uh, that's raised. And we actually have a chapter in our book on African-American women in the suffrage movement. And what's most memorable about um, 
that chapter and the actual formulating of that chapter is that information was almost impossible to find on African-American women in the suffrage movement. Um, we know that with, um, without hesitation, most African-American women in the South were unable to vote until 1965 with uh, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and, and even now, um, as you can see with our recent elections controversies, there are issues uh, with race and voting, or, and not just for women, but for men as well. Uh, another interesting fact, I think, is that in New Mexico, Native American women were not allowed to vote at all until 1962. Um, so what I'm saying, I guess, is that in this country, uh, women were never given anything. They had to fight relentlessly. Um, and in the case of especially white women, uh, 72 years, this formal suffrage movement took. And of course, for minority women, it took much, much longer. Uh, in some cases, at least 100 years longer to win full suffrage. The 19th Amendment was an extremely important step towards the kind of equality that we still don't have in full. Elaine said that the 19th Amendment was still a beginning, something to start the fight for true equality with, more than a final end goal. There's an earlier amendment, the, the 14th and 15th Amendment, which actually says that you could not limit voting on the basis of race or color. So that's that's the early one, but that one specifically doesn't say sex. So we needed the 19th Amendment. So what it doesn't do though is one, it says citizen, which meant Native Americans couldn't vote. Native Americans in 1920 were not considered US citizens. So that's that's a big one. Uh, we also know that in particularly southern states, the states actually did lots of discriminatory practices to prevent blacks from voting. And, you know, intimidation, all kinds of, of different things, and still do. Uh, we also know that, in fact, uh, Chinese Americans were not citizens. They could only become citizens after 1943. And other Asian Americans, so if your family had come here, 1952, very, very late. That, that's within my historical lifetime, <laughs> you know, so, so really those people could not, those people, whether they were men or women, could not vote because they weren't citizens. So the only thing that that amendment also did was guaranteed the right to vote, not all the other rights of citizenship. So women at that point who married men who were not citizens lost their citizenship, not the reverse. Men who married women who were not citizens didn't. So that was pretty bad. And women were not actually allowed to serve on juries. So again, this was, and this was later done by, on a state by state basis. And then eventually federal juries, it was not until 1975 that the Supreme Court mandated that juries must be selected from a group that's a fair cross-section of the community. So you have that. Uh, lots of other things. I mean, employment law is, is a big one. So that, you know, how are women treated as far as, as employment goes? Um, Title IX, universities and colleges. So uh, people, we think of it as, as athletics, but it actually is way broader than that. Um, access to healthcare, access to all kinds of, of different issues that, that you can see, those have nothing to do with the 19th Amendment. 
the only thing the 19th Amendment does is it allows people to vote. The only thing the 19th Amendment does is in fact allow people to vote. But that singular individual choice was what so much struggle went into. Why are we not voting in vast numbers? And we should be. And, you know, it's, it's whether it's absentee ballot now or, you know, I, voting, I think, locally here is very safe because people need to vote and that's it's really it's really important that it's you can't be cynical about it you can't say my vote doesn't matter it matters elaine tells me the story of edith ellis the first woman in tompkins county to run for office as early as in 1918 right after women in new york were given the right to vote and i don't like the word given it sounds like something that shouldn't have already belonged to us so she ran, right after women took the right to vote, and even though she lost that election, in this case, it really was the attempt that counted, because it set an exceptional precedence for women to come and the importance of women being active in politics. The same sentiment was reflected by Karen as she reiterated the words the recently deceased Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said in reference to female justices in the Supreme Court, quote, when I'm sometimes asked when there will be enough, and I say, when there are nine, people are shocked. But there had been nine men, and nobody's ever raised a question about that. As I was about to close the Zoom meeting and go back to sleep, even though it was 7 p.m., Karen left me with a singular message. No, I just, um, I'm looking forward to November 3rd. <laughs> So, and I, I want to encourage everybody, especially women and young women in particular, to go out and vote. For WICB News, I'm Himadri Sait. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also subscribe to the latest To Hear a Daily Newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard. WICB Station Manager, Sam Ives. Programming Director, Lou Baron. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director, Jay Bradley. With assistance from News Managing Director, Celan Tudor. News Production Director, Hamadri Sait. And today's correspondents, Agnes Scotty, Jess Moskowitz, and Vedant Akari. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Emily Hung, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. WICB.